You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas, a longtime MMA journalist, novelist, and podcaster. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. It's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's been 21 days, 21 days since the last time we recorded the co-main event podcast proper. That can't be true. Maybe the longest break we've ever taken in going on, what, seven years of doing this podcast. Are you sure? I think so. Last time we recorded was uh, December 17th. No. No. You're not buying it? No. Calling it fake news? Fake news. We've been off for a while. Sounds like an alternate fact. Also, um, I see you got yourself a new kind of intro. Had to figure out something different to say. On the bio there. Yeah. Had yeah. to go with some different uh, phraseology, I guess you'd say. Is So is that set now? We don't get a chance to workshop that? Just or trying out new it? stuff. Okay. We're all trying out new things. I made your intro a little bit different also. Yeah. I think here's what I think you should do. This is just me spitballing. Take okay. it or leave it. Yeah, I'm just, sure that this is going to be earnest. Just and, one guy uh, throwing out an idea to another guy. Your level-headed, uh, full-hearted attempt to help me out. What if every week you sprinkled in one thing that was untrue? Okay, so like three truths and a lie. Yes. Okay, I like it. I like where this is going. Like one week you're, Bull you know, fighter. I could just go with the fighter in there. podcast inventor of the internal combustion engine. Yeah. And then we make a game out of it. Yeah. I Think like about it. it. Think about it. Frankly, it's a lot more positive than I thought where you were going with that. Yeah. Well, hey, there was a lot of other places I could have gone and might still go. I appreciate your restraint, sir. Ben, a lot has happened since the last time we recorded the co-main event podcast. John Jones is once again the UFC light heavyweight champion, though obviously not without controversy. Amanda Nunes shocked the world with a 51-second knockout of Chris Cyborg. Floyd Mayweather made easy work out of the little homie tension Nasukawa. Sean O'Connell became a millionaire and immediately retired, just like you should do. Right. Had they even canceled UFC 233 yet the last time we recorded a show? That's a good question. It's all a blur to me. Yeah. I don't even remember. I don't remember either. In any case, we're back to our normal schedule now, serving up heaping helpings of the co-main event podcast free to everyone every Monday from here to eternity. It's good to be back. And this episode today is kind of going to be our effort to grapple with much of the stuff that we missed. We're going to put a bow on some of the things that happened at UFC 232 because, frankly, uh, we think that it deserves it. And then we'll be on to new business. But first, a couple of, uh, I guess you would say, house cleaning house cleaning notes. House For, cleaning? Housekeeping? Housekeeping? House cleaning? House building. House homekeeping? Homekeeping notes. Homesteading. Many of you are awaiting the CME Book Club about No Country for Old Men that was originally scheduled for Friday, January 11th. We're going to go ahead and move that back two weeks because uh, just of the weird way that the holidays impacted the CME, uh, basically two Mondays in a row were holidays. So we did not record the show owing to the the lengthy break here now. Uh, So we're going to go ahead and move back the No Country for Old Men Book Club to Friday, January 25th. That's two weeks. Again, also because we don't want to uh, go up against UFC on ESPN Plus One. 
which will be Saturday the 19th, right? Something like that. And this way you have more time to read the book and or see the film. We will be discussing both. I think you should do both. Yeah. Plenty of time now to do both. There's a lot of fun compare-contrast stuff you can do there, and we will. Yeah, the, uh, it's a quick read, and of course, you can watch the movie of, a, of a, an evening, if you choose, if you so choose. It would be a rare movie if it took you longer than an evening to watch it. No, okay. not, not in my house, but that's that's you know <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Uh, item number two this week on a recent episode of the CME, we teased some upcoming changes to our merchandise suppliers over at Cotton Bureau, and those are now live. Basically, you can go over to Cotton Bureau now and get yourself a Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes t-shirt or a Dundasso t-shirt whenever you want, because they're available on demand all the time. So... While it brings to an end one of my favorite recurring co-main event podcast gags, we yeah, talk about that's how a bummer. Uh, those shirts are gone forever and they're never going to be back. Yeah, that never got old. I can't believe we'll have to say goodbye to that one. The upside is you can go over there and uh, grab yourself a t-shirt whenever you want one, just in case you want to support the show. So it's 2 a.m., you're gone off goofballs. That's right. You had a couple few soda pops down at the saloon. You're freewheeling, just careening all over the internet. And the next thing you know, you think, God damn it, I want a t-shirt. You got to wear something. Yeah, you do. You do. The cops will tell you that. I'm just saying maybe uh, this is a step toward really feeding the part of our uh, listening audience that is compulsive shoppers. Yeah. I feel like that could be good for us. Terrible for them. Good for us. All right, here's the last thing. Then we're going to move on to uh, talking about the MMA news. We've uh, we got some changes that are coming to our Patreon in 2019 for all the little co-maniacs out there who find it in their hearts to help keep the show on the air and independent and beholden only to you, the listener. Obviously, if you sign up to support the show via Patreon, you get access to tons of cool, exclusive stuff, including the ability to live stream the co-main event podcast as we record it. You could be watching us right now. As we speak. It's thrilling, let me tell you. Uh, You get access to a whole additional 60-minute CME podcast every week in the form of the Patreon Power Hour. That comes out every Friday. And it did so even even during the holidays. Yeah. Really stuck with that one. Had a lot of fun with the power rankings this last time as well. That's one of my favorite features of the Power Hour. When news breaks, you get access to our short special retort podcasts, like the one we recorded when UFC 232 up and moved from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. You get access to our Saturday night immediate reaction podcasts, like the one we recorded in the wake of UFC 232. And this year, I think we're going to record those, uh, what, every, the night of uh, UFC pay-per-view? Every UFC pay-per-view? Yeah, we can, like commit, we can commit to that. You know, I'm starting to realize why it didn't seem like we had taken a long break off from this podcast. We actually recorded more podcasts than ever. Yes. During the, the, the downtime. Uh, you get exclusive written content like Ben's MMA noir narrative, The Old Man in the Sea, but that's not all. Some cool new stuff happening. Ben, tell the kids about what we got going over at the Patreon in 2019. Well, Chad, there's two main things we're adding here. Two major additions. To the menu. One is a little something that we like to call a live chat. Putting that in quotes, live chat. Live chat. Even though it will be live and it will be a chat. That's so right. You don't necessarily need to put it in quotes. A live He's chat. Still doing it for those in of which you just listening to the audio. Portion. We, you know, we may do this sometimes together. We may trade off on it, but uh, you know, we'll just kind of check in there once a week. You can join us live to chat, and uh, we can talk about what's going on. We can talk about what has gone on, what might go on, whatever you guys want to talk about. It is our way of 
you know, staying connected with our, our patrons who we love very much, help keep this show, uh, independent and, and operating. And so, yeah, just a, a, an opportunity for us to kind of sit down and talk through some stuff and we'll stream that, that live chat there on the Patreon. That's available to all tiers. That's if I'm right. Not mistaken. Every tier of the Patreon. But that is not all okay. because we are also adding a little something different. A whole new podcast, frankly. That's right. A whole new podcast. And this is a podcast that it's a giant leap forward for the co-main event. It's a leap of faith. Probably a terrible one. Probably just an awful idea. In some ways. We're going to be doing a podcast that has nothing to do with mixed martial arts. That's right. This will be available to the top tier over on the, uh, the Patreon, $10 patrons. I'm excited about it, though, Ben. It's an idea you and me have been talking about for a while now. What is it? Well, Chad, you know that they're making a Deadwood movie. I've heard that, yes. And you know that the Deadwood TV series was one of the greatest things to ever appear on the television box. It's, it, it's one of our shared interests. That's right. So what we're going to do is you and I, we're going to sit down and we're going to go back through the Deadwood canon, as it were. We're going to watch the whole thing. Episode by episode. All three seasons. That's right. One podcast per episode. And we're going to kind of go back, break it down, discuss what what is the genius at work here in this show. Um, and, yeah, just kind of go through it, kind of get ourselves hyped for the movie, yeah. which I already was pretty hyped. But also just take a step back to really enjoy and appreciate one of the finer works of art that's ever been turned into a TV show. And we invite all the people in the uh, the Patreon to come with us. That's right. Rewatch Deadwood, and then we're going to talk about it. Once a week. And we would also welcome your questions, comments, concerns along those lines. Chad, tell them what we're calling this special podcast. Road Agents. Road Agents. The Deadwood Rewatch Podcast. I'm so excited. I'm going to do the whole thing in this voice. Okay, I quit. I officially quit. as of I tender my resignation as of now. I actually don't think I can do that because this hurts my throat quite a bit. Yeah, it, it's going to take a toll on you. <laughs> well, now we've said it out loud. Now we actually got to do yep. Road Agents. Got to follow through. I can't believe that. When are we going to start doing that? Sometime in February? Yeah, I would start. say live chats and road agents are coming to you in February over on the Patreon. I think we probably get the live chat going a little earlier. Let's start first week of February. Road agents. We got music again this this week from our guy, the Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can check him out over on Twitter at the Fifth Element, Facebook.com slash the Fifth Element, or SoundCloud.com slash the Fifth Element Official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, Amanda Nunes went and knocked out Cyborg and became the GOAT. Now, wouldn't it be nice if some people outside the bubble knew who she was? And in round number two, John Jones didn't have a peak of gram of trouble with Alexander Gustafson. And so everything is cool, and we can all just move on with our lives and never mention this again, everybody with an ownership stake in the UFC earnestly hopes. And in round number three... Four days ago, UFC 235 was in the outhouse. Now it's headed for the penthouse. Maybe. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Wow, that was extra, extra listener Road mail. Road agents. See? Everyone's excited now. First question this week comes to us from Slick Williams. He writes, So the UFC screwed over thousands of fans, dozens of fighters, and seemingly gave not a singular fuck. But shit, man, that was over a week ago. We all grumbled a bit, made some declarative hashtags we won't stick by, and moved on. But shouldn't we care more than the organization 
Shouldn't we care more that the organization we routinely give money to blatantly does not give a shit about us? Seems like they have us all mapped out. We are outraged for 3.5 days and then revert to their baseline paying demographic. How long does it take to break a shit-eating wild person? There must be a limit. It's a good question. Uh, I would also suggest that maybe it's the defining era of the, the late capitalism that we're in, of giving our money to corporations that don't give a shit about us, that we realize they don't give a shit about us, and we get mad about it, but then we end up right back in the same place giving our money. It's not just confined to the UFC and MMA fans. And frankly, the UFC have good reason to believe that they have a completely impervious product here, right? Despite the fact that numbers are down across the board. If I was Dana White, at this point, I would look at my own conduct over the last decade or so. And I would be like, I can do fucking anything I want. And a good portion of these motherfuckers are still going to give me $65 come Saturday night. Okay. Two things about that. Um, one is that... There's a difference, especially in this instance, the UFC 232 instance, when we're talking about screwed over thousands of fans, dozens of fighters, and gave not one singular fuck. This was a bad one, I will say. Right. I do wonder the difference in impact between the people who are just, you know, buying it on pay-per-view, and early indications are a lot of people bought this one on pay-per-view, and with good reason, because it was actually a good product, and if you're buying it on pay-per-view, then maybe it shouldn't make a huge difference to you whether it goes down in Las Vegas or if it goes down in Los Angeles. It's the same product, and it was a good product. This is one of the better pay-per-view offerings that the UFC had in 2018, so it makes sense that the sales were good. But the people who organized a trip to Las Vegas around this thing yeah. and you know spent thousands of dollars, you wanted to go see the big UFC year-end show in Las Vegas, less than a week out, they move it, and you know maybe some people are able to switch things up and attend the one in Los Angeles. But I could see how a lot of people just not be able to do that. That's a lot to ask of people. Yeah. And they probably, you know, just ended up with flights they couldn't change and hotels that they uh, couldn't change. And the next thing you know, they just paid to go to Las Vegas and they're mad at the UFC. Those people, I would suspect, are not going to so easily forget it. Yeah, and especially since this was the year-end pay-per-view that comes during the holidays... I'm just guessing here that you probably had a lot of people like father and son teams, brother and brother teams, brother and sister teams. You and your college buddies who live in different cities now, you're all going to meet up in Vegas. Yeah, probably like people saved up their money. They bought these tickets to this major MMA show. It seems like if you are one of those people and this thing got pulled out from under you and switched over to Las Vegas or Los Angeles at the last minute, that I would totally understand if that was sort of like a last straw moment for you. And frankly, it comes at like kind of a pivotal time in the UFC when, you know, we're rolling out of the Fox deal and we are rolling into ESPN where one of the major things that they're going to ask people to do is find this new streaming service in ESPN Plus and shell out an additional $5 a month to watch the vast majority of the programming coming in, in 2019. So like... That alone presents a barrier. Right? Yeah. There's a barrier that only a certain percentage of fans are going to pass through. And it just seems like a really bad time to have what was one of the worst PR snafus in, in recent memory. But I guess we'll see, man. I mean, a lot of people still bought the, bought the pay-per-view, like you were saying. A lot of people are still going to follow the UFC over to ESPN+. Plus. Uh, but it just sounds, seems like with all of the issues that are happening with the, the product itself and, you know, people's inability to follow it, 
now moving to a new platform. It does seem like there is, as Slick Williams points out, a limit to the number of times that we can get kind of screwed over. Yeah, I do. I just wonder, like, what form that limit takes for people. Like, is it just that they're saying, you know what, screw this, I'm not going to watch the UFC anymore? Because that's a big leap to make. I mean, if you're a fan of this sport, you, for one thing, already put up with a lot of shit. Like, it reminds me of things I heard managers say when uh, talking to them about, you know, a fighters association, which was, if they haven't banded together and said enough is enough now, what will it take? You could make the same argument for fans of MMA in in a certain sense. But there's also, like, I don't know if it'll make those people less likely to just, like, watch or buy pay-per-views or pay for the streaming service or anything. I think that a lot of those people still are. Even It's like, you know, following your favorite NFL team, and even when you realize that the owner is a shithead... But you're still like, well, I've been following this team since I was a child. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to just completely stop and not watch football anymore. I think it's like that. But I do think that a lot of people, if they're thinking about planning a trip to go see a big UFC event in Las Vegas, the card subject to change and relocation reminder has to be prominent in your mind. Yeah. Like That's a thing I don't think people forget. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes... It used to be a taboo thing to voluntarily go up and wait, even when a fighter was known for struggling to make weight, as it seemed like they seemed to think they may be at a disadvantage. Recently, we've seen so many examples where fighters have proven this taboo subject was actually a benefit to their career. Just two weeks ago, we saw Michael Chiesa show an impressive win over Carlos Condit, and Amanda Nunes put on a performance of a lifetime versus the most dangerous woman on the planet. Anthony Smith is now facing a title shot at light heavyweight, and Luke Rockhold is talking about going up in weight as well. Bobby Knuckles is the champ in his division after going up, and although Kelvin Gastelum fought at tooth and nail, it turns out that going up to 185 seems to be working out pretty well for him. Do you think that we'll start seeing more fighters going up, and are there any fighters in particular that you think should be seriously thinking about doing so? One example that comes to mind is that the Cuban muscle crisis hasn't made weight even when a title was on the line twice. And I feel that he could make the light heavyweight division more interesting since we're starting to get a bit limited on contenders. Also, there's a whole bunch of interesting matchups at 155 for Holloway and Ortega since they're both pretty big for 145. Thoughts? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that there's definitely something to like pointing to other fighters and being like, look, look how much success they're having. Look how much healthier they look. Look how they're not just being tossed around like ragdolls up at the higher weight class. Instead, they themselves look stronger, and they're probably not as miserable. Uh, I think that the more fighters see their peers successfully doing this, the more the idea starts to become palatable to them. I think Anthony Smith is a great example. You know, Bobby Knuckles, Carlos Con- or uh, Michael Chiesa against Carlos Condit uh, going up to welterweight there. Like, I think that that's what it takes, more than us just being like, hey, the weight cut insanity should stop. Don't you see that you might be hurting yourself more than you're giving yourself an advantage? I think they have to actually see it in action. Um, man, imagine, though, if the Cuban muscle crisis, Yoel Romero, goes up to light heavyweight right after Luke Rockhold was like, all right, that's it. I'm starting over at light heavyweight. I'm kind of trying to jump right into the, the title picture there. And then, knock, knock. I love you, Luke. That actually does make Yoel Romero seem kind of stalkerish, does it not? <laughs> I would, I would be all for it, but I would feel bad for Luke Rockhold. I mean, it's a copycat sport, just like a lot of sports are. You know, one person starts hitting a tire with a sledgehammer, and they knock a few people out. <laughs> Suddenly, everybody's out in the backyard hitting a tire with a sledgehammer. Act like you're not at CrossFit hitting tires with sledgehammers on the regular. Hey, man, these lats, these lats are swole. Uh, 
And I think now that you have like a bunch of really high profile examples of this working out to people's benefit, obviously like George St. Pierre goes up to middleweight, wins a title. Daniel Cormier goes up to heavyweight, wins a title. Uh, as, as Tracy Dickinson notes here, Bobby Knuckles goes up, wins a title. The more people see other people have success with this, I think the more popular it's going to become, even though you know, not cutting quite as much weight has been a thing that's been percolating for a while in the MMA community. But I think like because of these high profile successes that we've seen, it's going to become more common. And I think that's probably a good thing, both health wise and like for Luke Rockhold, maybe a guy whose whose career needs a little shot in the arm. And, you know, we were he was talking specifically about going up, trying to fight John Jones at light heavyweight. I don't think there's anybody. Pump the brakes, bro. Pump yeah, the brakes. It'd be good to get a win or two at 205 yeah. before we start talking about the title. But like as much as nobody on the planet is probably going to go out and pick John Jones or pick Luke Rockhold to beat John Jones. It's another fresh matchup, just like Yoel Romero would be. And so, especially at 205 in these divisions where we have really shallow talent pools, I'm all for it. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's get some some big middleweights up there and see what happens. Yeah. Though you raise a good point that in the divisions where there's not enough good contenders like 205, there I'm all for it. When I hear people talking about Max Holloway going up to 155, I get frustrated because there's good fights to, for him at 145. You know, Alex Volkanovsky goes out there and finishes Chad Mendez. Sure, there's a title contender. There's some, some work for Max Holloway to do. I think in those other divisions, that's where we, I would like to see a little bit of a return to normalcy of people kind of staying home defending a belt. Next question this week comes to us from Marty in Nebraska. Okay. See what we did there? We made a fan out of Kamaro Usman. This is Ben Askren writing us under a pseudonym. Okay. Or it's actually somebody named Marty who lives in Nebraska. A lot of options. A lot of ins and outs. All right. Marty in Nebraska writes, did Dana White make you a reluctant Colby Covington fan? Okay. I think we can say it's probably not Kamaru Usman <laughs> writing in. It might be super sarcastic. God damn it. Now I have to cheer for Colby to win his next fight because even by UFC standards, he's getting shafted. Even though my in my heart, I'm more excited to see Usman versus Woodley, it's hard to enjoy now because it feels like the timing is completely off. The universe is out of sorts. Colby should be catching that fade, then Usman. Uh, Woodley is supposed to almost literally kill Kobe in a, Colby in a sanctioned MMA fight and then fight Usman. It's hard not to cheer for a guy who's getting so thoroughly screwed over by the man. Uh, by doing literally nothing, Colby has somehow <laughs> made a, a reluctant, arbitrary, albeit temporary fan. Please discourse. Okay. I won't go so, so far as to say that he's made me a fan. I mean, injustice is injustice, it, though, right? It is. And see, that's... I will point out the injustice regardless of whether or not I like you personally or want to cheer for you or want to see you do well. Like, if you were screwed over, you were screwed over. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't be we only care about uh, fairness for the people we like. If you care about fairness, then you care about it across the board. And he is getting screwed here. There's no way around that. But, I mean, that's not going to say that, like, I'm going to be tuning into Colby Covington's Twitter feed to watch him sit there with sunglasses on inside, like in a studio apartment with a MAGA hat on, uh, having some girl shake her ass. Like, that's not that's not going to ever be my jam, the Colby Covington jam. But still, I can point out, he is getting screwed. Yeah. I guess we should maybe pat ourselves on the back, everybody, that we're all going to rally around Colby Covington and, and shake our fists in the air and be like, this guy's getting a raw deal. Because I guarantee you, Colby Covington wouldn't that be saying that about any of us. That's true. That's a very good point. Still, though. He'd be calling us snowflakes, thinking right. that the world's going to be fair to us. Yeah, but I mean, 
like I said, feels like injustice is injustice. I hope also that Colby Covington can keep himself on the winning track and, and get out there and eventually uh, earn himself a UFC title shot. Yeah. I have a feeling we might end up talking a little bit more about this when we talk about UFC 235 later All on. All right. Last question this week comes from Austin Shippey. He writes, hashtag ain't shit going on. So how about we overlap with the shit-eating wild folk of r slash MMA. That would be Reddit MMA. Let's get the CME's bold predictions for 2019. Now, I'm springing this on you. Okay. Unless you read this in the car on the way to the gas station. Did not. So That would be unsafe. I'm going to go first. Okay. I want you to think about some predictions while, okay. while I'm talking. Obviously, Ben, we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about the UFC's move over to ESPN. One thing that I was noticing on... The, on the internet during our, our time off is that it, the UFC's only scheduled for two main card broadcasts on ESPN TV during the first like three months of the ESPN deal. The rest are all on ESPN Plus. Now, I know they're going to be doing um, some kind of, let's say, unconventional promotional stuff where maybe the undercard is going to be on television and then you have to switch over to ESPN Plus to actually watch the event. Maybe it'll be even crazier uh, than that. So I guess my bold prediction is, I think that after a brief honeymoon period, fans are going to start asking some tough questions about this ESPN deal and whether or not it's all that great for them, especially if the UFC is just not on television all that much. Uh, So my prediction is it goes even worse than the Fox deal in the early going. Now, does that mean... Will they switch it up? Will they find a way to to make it feel a little bit more worthwhile? Maybe so. But I just think that people are going to react poorly to the knowledge that they're going to have to have this streaming service, ESPN+, ESPN Plus, to watch what is the vast majority of UFC main cards. That's interesting. If I may tie in this last question with the first question, Don't you think that one of the things ESPN felt like they were buying with the UFC TV rights was an audience that will follow this anywhere and put up with a lot of shit, even if they don't like it, even if they complain and grumble about it online to each other a bunch? Don't you think that one of the things that they thought made this worthwhile was, hey, we have this streaming service we got to fill. These people, they are shit-eating wild people for this thing. They will go wherever it goes, and they, they may not like it, but they're going to keep showing up for it. Absolutely. And I think that strategy is totally borne out once you see the actual schedule. Because once you see it and it's like, whoa, every single one of these events is on ESPN+, Plus, except for, I believe, two UFC on ESPN events during basically the first quarter of 2019, I think that you see like the, the, the machinery working in the background. You, you see the strategy here and you see exactly what ESPN's thinking is bringing the UFC over, and that is that they do, in fact, need people to sign up for the unbelievably hard to unsubscribe from ESPN+. Plus. <laughs> What'd you have to do? Write them a letter? You gotta send them an email. Write, write them a, send, send them a telegram? You have to send their support, like an email. And then they'll be like, all right, we'll pause it for you. You have to show up and petition in person? like. And it's another thing that, like Fight Pass, I remember when I finally signed up for Fight Pass and then quickly realized that it wasn't my jam, I discovered that like you basically can't delete your information from Fight Pass. You have to like put it on pause. So the UFC is basically just warehousing all of our credit card information somewhere. Uh, it's the same thing with ESPN+. Plus. They're like, all right, we'll pause your service. So uh, everyone's debit card numbers are just sitting in a 
in a server somewhere in Bristol. Yeah. You should... Waiting for the Russians to come get them. <laughs> well, it's not like the UFC has ever been hacked and then had the UFC president invite the hackers to do it again. Except that that, that totally happened. I mean, I feel totally safe. I would write my credit card number on a napkin and just hand it to Dana White. That's <laughs> uh, all right. My bold prediction. I say that by the end of 2019, Bellator looks vastly different. Whoa, or at okay. least the presentation of Bellator looks vastly different. Uh, I don't think it's long for the Paramount Network. I think you see it on DAZN. And uh, that I don't think... It really fits with what they're trying to do with the like newly rebranded Paramount Network. I don't know if it will still be on TV in some form somewhere by the end of 2019, but I think it's not it's not going to be the same as what we were what we've been used to before. Like where it was just Bellator was on TV every Friday night, more or less, from Uncasville, Connecticut. I don't think that by the end of 2019, that's what Bellator will look like anymore. So what do you think it'll be? What's I think it'll vision be for the future? a lot of streaming stuff and that maybe it'll be offloaded to you know some other TV property. But I think that the, the streaming thing is going to be a, a major thing for Bellator. So basically, we're both saying, if you want to be an MMA fan in 2019... Get your credit card out. You're going to be watching a lot of the streaming product, mm-hmm. which I guess just dovetails with the rest of, of television. That just seems to be where we're headed. So there you go. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, 51 seconds is all it took Amanda Nunes to go out there and tear down the legend of Chris Cyborg. She wins the women's featherweight title, becomes the first female champ champ in UFC history via KO. This one was just an ass kicking. It was an all out blitz by Amanda Nunes. Chris Cyborg never really got the Ferrari out of the garage. Uh, And the whole time, as we talked about in our immediate reaction podcast, kind of had this look on her face where she was like, well, I'm experiencing some early adversity, but it is only a matter of time before my superior power triumphs and this fight ends exactly the way all of my other fights have ended until the moment that she sort of collapsed on her own face. Yeah. In fact, even referee Mark Goddard during the final exchange of the fight was kind of like doing that thing where they dance around trying to figure out if they should stop the fight with this look on his face like, what is happening right now? How, how are you going to think about this as time moves forward? One of the one of the great moments in MMA history? Yeah, I think so. Especially because I did not really give Amanda Nunes much of a chance in this one. I don't know about you. Yeah. I, I mean, well, I, I don't thought... know that anybody did except for her immediate family and uh, coaching staff, all of whom were <laughs> and Nina supremely and confident yeah, they, the whole time. They probably really believed. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a rough night for her. But I think one of the things that is 
or at least is going to feed uh, requests for a rematch as time goes on, I think, is that sense that maybe Cyborg did not have the programming to deal with getting rocked early on in a fight. She did, did not have it in her to be like, all right, let's step back for a second, collect our thoughts, maybe cover up a little bit. Let's see if we can uh, maybe get a clinch or a takedown and clear our heads. She just didn't have that in her. She was so used to being the bulldozer in every single one of those fights that when she got hit, it was like she, it made her only more insistent on coming forward and being super aggressive. And like, I don't know if you saw backstage where, you know, she's getting kind of upbraided about that. Like, hey, you don't have to, you have actual like striking skills. You don't have to just charge forward and brawl. But once she got clipped, uh, she kind of couldn't stop herself from doing that. And I think because she hasn't really been in that situation in an MMA fight before. So that's why I would be interested in seeing a rematch. Maybe not necessarily immediately because, you know, we get sick of the immediate rematch thing. But I'd be interested in seeing, you know, maybe Chris Cyborg fights somebody else, reminds everybody that she's still Cyborg, if in fact she is still Cyborg. And then we do this one again, because I do think that there was an element to it where a part of us is going to be wondering, okay, but could Amanda Nunes hit that half-court shot again? Right. Yeah, especially since there are about two women's flyweight, or women's featherweights in the UFC. You know, uh, Chris Cyborg gets another win over somebody. Uh, I guess Megan we, Anderson. Megan Anderson, for example. Sure. We need to, add, I guess, address the idea of where... Amanda Nunes will even be fighting in the future if she'll go back down to bantamweight or stay at 145. But like this fight does seem like the kind of thing that we may end up seeing again if for no other reason than the sort of lack of competition for for perhaps both women out there uh, might make it you know, bring it, bring it back around sooner rather than later. Well, and uh, uh, Chris Cyborg is a legit draw. She's a legit pay-per-view draw. She I, was. I, think she, I think she still is. I think she really helped out probably on the pay-per-views uh, on this one. But if you're going to have her help you out on the pay-per-view, then you probably want her in a title fight of some kind. Here's my question. You talk about, hey, we don't know where uh, Amanda Nunes' next title fight will be. Will she go back to defend the bantamweight title? Will she defend the featherweight title? Will the UFC actually let her have a chance to hold both and defend both? Um, I think there's an argument that if there's any weight classes or two weight classes where you can have somebody as a champ champ and let them actually keep and defend both belts, it's this one because there's not really much of a women's featherweight division. Like It's not like you'd really be holding things up if there were only one or two title fights a year in women's featherweight at the UFC. My question, though, is, is Amanda Nunes the most legit champ champ the UFC has ever known? Wow, that's an interesting question. She has wins over five UFC champions. She also, uh, unlike you know somebody like Conor McGregor, where won the featherweight title, never defended it, won the lightweight title, never defended it, uh, or never successfully defended it, she defended the bantamweight title, then went up to featherweight and beat, you know, a somebody who everybody thought was going to absolutely destroy her. Yeah. Uh, also, like unlike Daniel Cormier, he he won the light heavyweight title, but there was a little bit of an asterisk next to it because you know he had to have the no contest over John Jones and then uh, had to win the title in John Jones's absence, and then went up to heavyweight and legit won it. Amanda Nunes does not have any of those asterisks. She won that title straight up, defended it straight up, no doubts about it, then went up, won that one uh, very clearly. I kind of think that she has the strongest credentials as the the truest champ champ 
in UFC history. Yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, it's it's a pretty easy call, is it not, to make her the the most legit champ champ? Although, like, we're having an extremely specific discussion here, but yes, yeah, like are. the most legitimate two two weight class simultaneous weight class champion in the UFC history. Sure, I would I would think that's true. And we you know coming out of this event, a lot of the discourse has kind of circled around the fact that. You know, Amanda Nunes has not become a big star in MMA. And, you know, whether that's because she doesn't particularly like promoting herself or be the, the UFC has kind of, uh, like, done in, uh, the opposite of promote her over time. Uh, it seems like a shame when she won this fight, she jumped over the rail and, as we said, kind of, like, had her Chris Weidman moment where it seemed like she was compelling Dana White to join the team. Join the team. I wonder if there could be some method to the madness of allowing her to keep both belts. Because if you want, among the other things that she brings to the table, which I think are are marketable in, in numerous ways, like if you want to give Amanda Nunes a little something extra, maybe she's the fighter that you let be the champion in two weight classes, and she can bring both those belts with her everywhere and talk about how she's the baddest woman on the planet, the greatest female MMA fighter of all time, et cetera, et cetera. Especially since... You know, as the topic perennially seems to be in the featherweight division, it's not like people are really knocking the door down in terms of, like, having a crowded title picture. Yeah. Well, and you say, like, when you talk about promotability, I don't know if you've seen what Amanda Nunes has been doing over there on social, on the social media after she won this title. She's having some fun with the whole double champ thing. Like, she's on there. uh, She's driving both the belts to practice, putting them each in their own seat in the back seat of the car as she's driving her convertible to practice there in South Florida. Uh, she's climbing up on the, uh, the the mantle above the fireplace to hang her belts up for display. Like she is, There's some stuff there that you can promote. Uh, it's a question of if the UFC is going to want to do it because as we've noted in the past, especially when it comes to the women's division, the UFC has seemed to kind of gravitate toward a certain kind of fighter, a certain look among fighters, and uh, it hasn't really cared enough to put a lot of promotional weight behind Amanda Nunes yet. But now, what choice do you have? Right, and like, I know I've said it before, but it continues to blow my mind that the UFC either doesn't see or doesn't care that people like Amanda Nunes could potentially give it the opportunity to market to demographics that it does not historically market to. Like you look at, you know, the hardcore MMA fan base, we kind of all know who those people are, what they do, you know, what they look like. And the UFC knows it's warehousing all of our credit card information over there at Zufa headquarters. People like Amanda Nunes give you the opportunity to bring more people into the tent. People that might not give MMA the time of day until they find a person like Amanda Nunes who for one reason or another appeals to their interests. And then they're like, hey, I should check this out. And then they watch UFC 232 and it's awesome. And they're like, when's the next one? And it just seems like the UFC wants everyone to look either like Ronda Rousey or Brock Lesnar and doesn't care about anything else, which is, I don't, like, I don't know, man. It seems to me like, especially for a company that we've talked ad nauseum about, like the numbers are kind of down. Uh, seems like it could use all of the people in the tent that it could get. A bigger tent. Yes. No, I don't disagree. All right. What do you think Amanda Nunes should do next, Ben? You think she should stick around at, at featherweight? Do you, or do you think she should fight someone like Jermaine Durand to me or 
or uh, you know a rematch with Cyborg Justino, or do you think she goes back down to bantamweight and you know basically takes on all comers? Please not Jermaine Duran to me. Oh, that's that's just that well, that does not get me worked up. You don't have a you don't have a huge lineup of people. No, I mean I I think that she should. If she's amenable to it, I think she should go down to bantamweight and defend that title there just to kind of get it in people's minds. Like, look, I'm going to be both champions and I can do it. I'm willing to show up that often and it's not going to be a problem. Because it's not like there's a name that jumps out at you at featherweight right yeah. now. I mean, Megan Anderson won that fight after you know putting her, her toenail upside uh, Kat Zingano's face. Okay, she's been in the conversation for a little while. You know, Holly Holm, like one of the few former UFC champions that uh, Amanda Nunes has not beaten, despite Chad believing that she had, like a fucking idiot. Uh, I mean, it's it's almost like I send a message from the future, though, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But yeah, I think that it, there's more work to be done down there at Bantamweight uh, and maybe let Cyborg and somebody else like Megan Anderson fight it out at Featherweight to see what you're going to do next there. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Sure. And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, we all saw what Floyd Mayweather did to the little homie Tenshin Nasukawa. We did. New Year's Eve over there at Ryzen 14. Interestingly enough, after Floyd Mayweather kind of made it a point to tell us essentially that we should not watch. That he was like, ah, it's going to be an exhibition. I'm going to be out there moving around with this guy. Whatever, whatever. Definitely did not couch it as appointment viewing. Then he goes out there and just fucking decimates tension. Knocks him down multiple times. Corner throws in the towel, I believe. Kind of more than we bargained for in this clash between Floyd Mayweather and Tension Nasukawa. You know who watched? Who? Connor Anthony McGregor. And then he jumped on the social media to say that he wants to go over. Nay, nay, demands to go over to Japan and fight tension in a an MMA exhibition fight. Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, we got to stop following Floyd around at some point, right, Connor? We got to do our own thing. We're not just a game of Simon Says with Floyd Mayweather here. Let's let's not do that. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Just ridiculous stuff. I don't even know how that would even work. We I'd, would have a lot to figure out. You've already put more thought into it than <laughs> Connor Anthony McGregor did. Uh, Chad, this week, my are you fucking kidding me? Have you seen the photos of what your boy TJ Dillashaw is looking like as he gets down there to, to 125? I have not, but you've been selling it pretty hard that, I, that the man is looking quite haggard. He, you know how fighters will get that weight cut face? Yeah. Uh, where it kind of looks like, uh, they're, they're like a wax skeleton version of themselves. Yes. And they just don't even really look like the, the same person. There's your boy TJ Dillashaw. Yeah, he looks he looks dehydrated. The fight's still a couple weeks away. Like, yeah, he's got some time to go yet. He's got the face already. Makes me want to send him some Pedialyte yeah. in the mail. I mean, that's like the worst thing you could do to him right now. That's probably true. But man, it it's like I don't know if you ever saw in the like Ben Kingsley Gandhi movie where at one point he's on a hunger strike and yeah. he he warns someone, please don't let that goat bump into me because I'm so fragile at this point that I, I would not survive the fall. We're kind of getting to that point over here. Yeah. I'm a little worried. Fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? You know, I haven't really started weight cutting yet. 
weirdly enough, I oftentimes see people walking around my neighborhood who have this sort of waxy skeleton there's face. A, there's a different thing going on there. Okay. Yeah. They're not cutting weight nope. for an MMA fight? Nope. There's a whole different situation. We'll talk about it later. Okay. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Well, Chad, careful listeners of this podcast will have observed that you noted John Jones had not a picogram of trouble against Alexander Gustafson in their rematch at UFC 232. In fairness, we don't necessarily know that yet. Well, I mean, he didn't have a picogram of trouble from bell to bell. Didn't a pretty, have a picogram of trouble in the fight. Yeah, it was a pretty dominating performance by John Jones. Some might say a return to... The style of the of the John Jones we knew and loved when he came into the UFC like to take motherfuckers down and, and pound on them. Uh, now, in and around the fight, obviously that was a different story because uh, if you showed up Saturday night at the T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada with your John Jones pennant and your John Jones t-shirt and your JBJ socks oh, this is a and great your Bone Jones image. Uh, shorts on and all the lights was turned off and the door was locked, <laughs> there was a reason why, my friend. There was a reason why. Oh, I'm just imagining the least clued-in MMA fan walking up all the gear, pulling that door, and stepping back. Looking in the windows. Looking up. Checking their, their Casio digital watch to see if the date is right. I'm going, I don't, I don't understand. Now, John Jones goes out there. He beats up Alexander Gustafson. What's interesting to me is that afterwards, John Jones, he's on the gram. Yep, the Instagrams. And he's saying... Normally what I do here <laughs> is take a couple weeks off and just party my ass off. Now that, I believe. Maybe the most honest thing he said in a while. I have in no trouble believing it. But he's like, you know what? I'm not going to do that this time. I'm right back in the gym. I'm right back to work. And I really want to get busy. I want to defend this belt and fight three times in 2019. All you light heavyweights who want it, you're all going to get it. Let's go. Let's do this stuff. Here it comes. Now, that part, I admit, I was a little skeptical of uh, because I thought, you know, maybe you get back into the gym, you start thinking about some potential matchups, and you do a little bit of mild partying, you know, just in between. Some soft partying. Yeah. PG-13. Yeah. You know, like a couple happy hours, you know, you meet up with the guys for some wings. An open mic here or there. Yeah. Yeah, you do your spoken word poetry at an open mic, you have a couple white wine spritzers, the next thing you know it's 4am and you're in a nightclub. Is part of it, is part of your reluctance to believe that this is what, what's happening, is that this is the John Jones we've sort of been waiting to see for a while? Like you don't want to get your hopes up that John Jones is, is once again about that fight life? Well, and also we've heard from John Jones before, the like, you know what, learned my lesson now I'm I'm about that life. I'm about the business now. Uh, no more problems out of me. Yep. And then his buddy calls and says two for one sh- shooters down at Cubby Sampson's and all <laughs> Next, bets are off. Yeah. Going to go down there and get some of those jalapeno poppers. Uh, but then he turns right around and he has booked himself a fight or at least verbally agreed to. I think he has to go before the athletic commission at the end of the month to yeah. uh, finally get cleared. But he really seems like he's going to do it at least – the early part of the year seems like he is going to do it at light heavyweight. My question to you, are there enough light heavyweights 
to support the idea of John Jones defending the belt three times in 2019? Or would we get to a point by the end of the year where it's like John Jones versus Alir Latifi and we're going, all right, we, we didn't want this after all. We thought we wanted John Jones to get serious and stay busy and, and keep defending that belt. And now we realize there's not enough work. Well, to that end, it's kind of like Anthony Smith is a freebie, right? Because here you got a middleweight who came up to light heavyweight, got himself a couple wins. Now he wants to fight John Jones. That's just like an extra guy. That guy just showed up. Why not fight him <laughs> if you're John Jones? I mean, maybe he turns out to be a, a, a tougher stylistic matchup than, than maybe we're anticipating. But at the same time, you can fight and beat that guy and still have all of the light heavyweights at your disposal. Yeah, not feel like you've knocked any guys off the list. I don't hate that fight, though. No, I mean, it's awesome. It's an awesome fight. I think Anthony Smith has, you know, he's to the point there where, sure, I, I don't have a problem seeing that guy get a title shot at this point. I think that he is, he does have an argument like where he feels like people are always just kind of underestimating him and being like, okay, you beat this guy, but you'll go no further. And I saw him in one of those uh, scrum interviews where he was backstage at one of the events and was actually quite articulate in explaining, like, you know, maybe some people would want to consider the possibility that I'm just actually good at fighting. Like, does anybody want to entertain that possibility other than me? And, yeah, like, I I don't have a problem seeing John Jones be like, all right, this guy is the guy making noise at light heavyweight now. He's somebody I haven't beat. Sure, give me that guy. Even if he runs through him and completely dominates him, I probably won't find myself looking back on that and going, well, Anthony Smith was never any good to begin with. It'll just be like, John Jones is so far ahead of everybody. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I honestly feel like it's sort of the perfect fight to book for John Jones right now, you know, unless he loses, which we don't anticipate, uh, just because of all those reasons. And like, keep him busy, keep him in the cage. You're not really thinning the light heavyweight herd all that much, though... I agree with you that it does seem a little bit pie in the sky to think that we would get three John Jones fights in 2019, and on top of that, that they would be three light heavyweight championship title defenses. Like, I think John Jones is going to chase the money if it's out there. And like, so let's say he beats Anthony Smith. I would think Daniel Cormier is still available for him. I really want that fight to happen at heavyweight. But I understand that we're still kind of talking about it as a 205-pound title fight. And then let's say John Jones won both of those fights, which we have some previous anecdotal evidence to suggest he might. If they offered him Brock Lesnar, heavyweight fight, New Year's Eve, don't you think John Jones would sign on the dotted line for that thing rather than, you know, another fight against OSP or Tyson Pedro or Alir Latifi? Corey Anderson. Beaston, 25-8. Yeah, no, he he fights Lesnar and takes that payday rather than Beast in 25-8, and he'd be a damn fool not to. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that the sticking around at light heavyweight thing is negotiable, and maybe it's just a smart ploy on his part to be like, instead of doing what everybody else is doing and talking about going up to the next weight class and getting another belt, I'll say I'm staying home and I'm cleaning out my division, and I'll make you beg me to go up. I'll make you try to lure me up to heavyweight with a good fight or a good financial offer. Maybe that would not be the dumbest thing you could possibly do in John Jones' situation. Uh, I do think, though, if we end up at the end of 2019 and it's Jones versus Corey Anderson and he's kept his promise to just beat up a bunch of light heavyweights, we're all going to be kind of heaving a sigh as we push by on the pay-per-view and knowing what we're going to get. Yeah. Okay, let's shift gears real quick and talk about the other reason why it seems perhaps pie in the sky to think we're going to get three John Jones fights in 2019. (laughs) 
I'm looking at the man's Wikipedia page right now, Ben, okay. and I just happened to notice that, you know, as you scroll down on Wikipedia, you come to the section that says championships and accomplishments, mm-hmm. and then it, it has a, a list, and for John Jones, it has a healthy list, obviously, because he does, in fact, have a lot of championships and accomplishments. One of his accomplishments is listed as becomes the first UFC fighter to enroll in two anti-doping agencies. And then in parentheses, it says USADA and VADA. And accomplishments? the one wasn't quite voluntary. Even accomplishments? Though. Question mark. I mean, he did it. He d- he did do it. So we talked the picogram of Torina Ball thing to death over on the Power Hour and special retort and immediate reactions. Also worth noticing noting how long the failed drug tests entry is in John Jones's Wikipedia page. I also want to note that in this, where it says the thing about enrolling in two anti-doping agencies, it actually says, become the first UFC fighter to enroll in two, the numeral two, anti-doping agency. So maybe not an official Wikipedia <laughs> editor went ahead and put that in there. Six paragraphs here for failed drug tests, uh, and then another six paragraphs under controversies. Yeah. I don't want to talk the Turin ball thing to death again, but maybe a short discussion about where we are at the moment. Obviously, the UFC has put forth one explanation as to how John Jones failed a few drug tests leading up to uh, this fight against Alexander Gustafson. There are some perhaps refuting opinions out there. Uh, we mentioned Dave Meltzer's Let's Talk Wrestling podcast where he talks about it. Uh, Larry Pepe has a good one where he talks about it. Both guys who uh, have some knowledge about performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, whether or not you buy the UFC's explanation up to this point, I don't even know if that's really here or there at this moment. But as we move forward, and the UFC's official position is we have no idea how long or whether we will encounter future picograms, and we're booking John Jones in a fight Three months from now, is it, like I said, pie in the sky to think we're not going to have another problem here? And if we do have another problem, are they even going to tell us about it? See, the second one is what I really wonder about, especially because you told us basically that you had prior problems and didn't tell us about it. Well, you told us a completely different thing first. Right. Um, So there is some concern about how the transparency is going to work there. And then with John Jones, it's not just the question of, Will he keep dropping them picograms? Which, as you noted before, and I think in the Power Hour last week, it's kind of more suspicious if he doesn't. Right. You already told us like they could be in there forever. Yeah. So if there's never another Turinabal picogram in a, in a in a future John Jones drug test, that almost brings up more questions. Right. But then there's the other side of things that could interfere with John Jones's plan to stay in the gym, stay in the cage, and stay busy. And that is, he's been known to do some stuff extracurricular-wise yeah. that interferes with his ability to continue fighting as a professional athlete. Yes. I mean... You might consider his defining characteristic. The the notion of him T-boning a school bus full, full of children in a sports car was brought up in a recent listener mail question. And while it seemed like it was exaggeration for the purposes of humor... It wasn't that far of an exaggeration. It wasn't, like, completely out of the realm of possibility. There are stuff like that where you wonder, like, all right, is, is, does he beat Anthony Smith? And then he's like, okay, well, we'll do a little partying after this. And then the next thing you know, 
mugshot on TMZ, and we got a, the whole other side of the John Jones problems yeah. again. That is the million-dollar question. But I guess we're going to find out as we move forward in 2019. That's going to go for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, just a few days ago, the main event of UFC 235, which goes down March 2nd, again, at T-Mobile Arena in Paradise, Nevada. As of right now. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it was listed as TBA versus TBD over on Wikipedia. Now, a scant few days later, let me read to you some choice cuts from what we think will be the UFC 235 fight card. Main event, John Jones versus Anthony Smith for the light heavyweight championship. Okay. Co-main event, Tyron Woodley versus Kamaru Usman for the welterweight championship. You also got Robbie Lawler versus Ben Askren, Jeremy Stevens versus Zabit Megomed Sharapov, Holly Holm versus Aspen Ladd, Cody Garbrandt versus uh, Pedro Munoz, and on and on from there, including but not limited to Ovin St. Prue versus Misha Sirkinov. So like a few days ago, we were talking about this thing like it was lost property like it was done like dinner now it seems like it might be the best pay-per-view card of the early part of 2019 right now but granted there are some hurdles you could you could lose a few of these and still be in pretty good shape depending on which ones yeah i mean no this is a, a really solid card because not only do you have some real firepower in uh title fights at the top but like good solid undercard stuff Kind of like we used to see uh, from the UFC back before they ran like 50 events a goddamn year, where the undercard is packed with people who are either right on the cusp of being a title challenger or are kind of figuring it out between the two of them who is going to be there. And, you know, also coincidentally could serve as emergency backups. Like, because, you, you know, you mentioned uh, OSP versus Mirsha Sirkinov in the light heavyweight division. Uh, and then at welterweight, Robbie Lawler and Ben Askren, like, making sure that each title fight has some available backups in the same division booked for the same card, that does not seem accidental. It seems like that's just going to be part of the UFC's plan going forward whenever possible. Um, but then also fights like, you know, Holly Holm versus Aspen Ladd, uh, that could tell you a little bit about what's going to happen in the future of the women's bantamweight uh, title picture. So, like, it is a super solid card. The... The thing that I wonder about, I guess, is because it's such a solid card, why did it seem like the UFC was just absolutely intent on having a welterweight title fight on this card? To the point that it was going to do it, or at least said it was going to do it, whether the champion was involved or not. It kind of seems like that's the last thing you would need for a card like this, is to you know, shoehorn in a title fight under threat of being stripped of your title if you don't agree to it. Like, I could see it if you didn't have a main event and you were like, okay, we got to have that welterweight title fight here, otherwise we're screwed. But you you wouldn't be screwed with this one. No, and I mean, especially since this thing came together so fast, it's almost like Sean Shelby had to come in on a weekend and, like, make some stuff happen. And then all of a sudden... he was home for a weekend. I think he's always there for the weekend. And then all of a sudden you got an amazing UFC pay-per-view card, and you're right, if you didn't have... Tyron Woodley versus Kamaru Usman on here would still be really, really good, assuming that 
everything goes as scheduled with John Jones and the Nevada State Athletic Commission, which is always kind of a big assumption. Uh, yeah, man, like it just speaks to the to the firepower of the UFC and how many bullets it has in the gun to continue Scott Coker's uh, analogy of how it kind of ran out of bullets and had to cancel UFC 233. But I mean, but it's I mean, just, you cancel a card and maybe you spread out a little talent, uh, some available fighters. It's a, just an embarrassment of riches when it comes right down to it. Cause you can throw Jeremy Stevens versus a beat Magomed Shirabov at us without even blinking. And that's a pretty awesome fight. Yeah. Uh, do you believe that that was a real threat that the UFC was going to do Kamaru Usman versus someone for the UFC welterweight title? Like, would it have stripped Tyron Woodley six months after his latest title, after his last title defense, just to put up uh, Tyron Woodley or Kamaru Usman versus TBD for the actual welterweight title? Well, I mean, you're or is acting that just meant to like light a fire under Tyron Woodley. Right now, you're acting like there are any rules, or like the world still makes sense. I absolutely believe that they would have had Kamaru Usman fight somebody for a welterweight title. Maybe they wouldn't even have to strip Tyron Woodley. He could still be the welterweight champion. Colby Covington could have a welterweight belt at home. We could all be welterweight champions for all I care. Uh, but yeah, like, who knows? It's kind of like a, a... It's not necessarily out of character for the UFC to do that kind of arm twisting in order to get its way. And for whatever reason, it seems like the relationship with Tyron Woodley is especially... Uh, volatile. Well, yeah, and that's what it seems like. I wrote a column earlier today about kind of what what can we learn about what happened there at welterweight because you had these three guys, right? You got Tyron Woodley, Colby Covington, Kamaru Usman, and it seemed like the only one that the UFC was really committed to, like this guy is going to be there. Everybody else can either get your shit together or not. Was Kamaru Usman? Yeah, which was weird. I mean, yeah. he basically got that win over Rafael dos Anjos and uh, the UFC. All of a sudden, decided they were all about Kamaru Usman. Right, and he had done only exactly what Colby Covington had done. He beat Rafael dos Anjos via decision. They both beat him, and so yeah, it did seem a little weird that they were like, "Okay, this is the guy we're going with." But then it's also it seems like he was probably the guy who said yes the quickest and said yes to whatever you want. Yeah, rather you know he said, "Hey, we want a, a welterweight. We want you in some kind of welterweight fight, either you know title contender or a title fight coming up here in the next couple of months." And he said, "Yeah, tell me when, and I'll be there." Whereas Tyron Woodley was saying, "No, I want Colby Covington." Colby Covington was saying, "I I want Tyron Woodley." And the UFC, as it often does, goes with the company guy who just says, "I'll do whatever you want, even if it's probably a bad idea for me. I'll go and I'll do it." But it also makes you realize that the UFC still sees Tyron Woodley as expendable. Like It's not really behind his welterweight title reign. If he's not going to be able to show up on the date, we'll have somebody else do it. It's not going to make that big a difference because he's not a, a big superstar. And it used to be, and this still seems like it's programmed into UFC fighters' minds, hey, if you get the belt, then you're there. Then they can't fuck with you. Then you get to kind of call your own shots, and you don't have to be bossed around. You don't have to say yes to absolutely everything. Once you get that belt, that's the dream. Then yeah. you can kind of shape the world around you a little bit more. And stuff like this kind of reminds you, that, especially in the, the new UFC where we're taking belts away and just giving them to other people and making up new ones, that's not always the case for every single champion. Yeah, and it's it's a shame for Tyron Woodley, who's uh, obviously an amazing fighter and uh, like super talented and seems like a nice guy. Uh it just seems like his relationship with the UFC is incredibly fraught, and I'm not totally sure why, uh, though I think we can infer that perhaps like he has uh, you know, uh, made his, his intentions known more than the company itself likes it to, to be done from fighters. If it were a completely different company, 
maybe I would look at the situation and think the UFC didn't want to drag itself through the mud of the lead up to a Tyron Woodley versus Colby Covington <laughs> championship fight. But we oh, all they know. thought that, that was undignified. Yeah, we thought? all we all thought we all know that's not true. No. There's just no way. That's In not fact, true I don't know, all. maybe someone should go you know explain why it took to Colby him. Covington to the fucking White House, man. <laughs> he was proud to be standing there with Donald Trump and Colby Covington. It's not like they were like, well, we are concerned about that that this guy might say some things that are untoward and uh you know, it would reflect poorly upon him. He took him to the goddamn White House. Get out of here. I mean, he's just a little boy with a dream, Ben. He wanted to meet the president. Yeah, well, I'm sure everybody uh, really regards that moment fondly now. I'm glad they were a part of it. I know we talked about uh, Anthony Smith in the previous round, but I just like wanted to talk a little bit about, more about him before we wrap the show up. Like I said before, you, you can have a light heavyweight title fight with him without necessarily thinning the 205-pound herd. He's He's been in the UFC since February 2016, so about three years he finds himself in this main event title fight against John Jones, which is, you know, about as big as it gets for a guy, you know, around that weight. He seems, uh, Anthony Smith is totally having a moment right now. He seems like a, a good guy. He's obviously articulate. He was on television for the UFC 232 broadcast on Fox. It seems to me like, almost like he just showed up at the party the moment that the champagne got opened. Like, he's got three wins at light heavyweight. It's respectable. But it just seems like the timing is impeccable. Like, he's here. We just poured the cocktails. Here, Anthony Smith, have one. You just walked in. I mean, that's... That's how I like to show up to a title or to a, to a party is just just in time for like when you open the good stuff. Yeah. I don't want to make small talk with all you losers, but I mean, also I think that like if you look at Anthony Smith's long career, he had to go through some times there, right. man. And I I mean maybe that's what makes it just easier to feel good about him walking in just in time to take that glass of champagne. Because it seems like that's a guy who kind of proved the the power of sticking to it, and then going up a weight class, making that work for him. And still, I mean, I think people kept doing the thing where being like, all right, you won one, but we're not that we're not sold yet. And he just kept after it, and now here he is. But, yeah, I mean, of course, the reward might be getting your whole shit broke by John Jones. Yeah, he lost four fights in a row in 2009, 2010, while he was still fighting on the independent circuit. So a guy who's been through some adversity, he's been a pro since 2008. So he does seem like one of these people who seems like an he's an overnight success 10 years in the making. Uh, which, you know, at this point, he seems like a feel-good story in MMA. This guy who kind of like comes out of nowhere and now is, is fighting John Jones. And as you said, that can always be a double-edged sword when you're taking on uh, one of the guys who's one of the best that's ever done it. We did get an email from somebody. I don't have it in front of me. I can't remember how who it was from, but it basically just said, can you imagine living in the world where Anthony Smith is the one to beat John Jones? Well, I mean, I guess I can imagine that world at least once, uh, but you know what'll happen. It'll be, everybody will assume it's a Matt Sarah GSP situation. You'll have, you'll have yeah. to run it back. Yeah. You're not just going to beat John Jones and be like, well, that chapter is finished. On to me versus Corey Anderson. Let's say you're Daniel Cormier and you're sitting at home and Anthony Smith knocks out John Jones. Is your response... You're wearing slippers, obviously. Yeah, you're, yeah. Watching, you're, you're in your robe. You're your wearing shirt slippers. is tucked into your sweatpants. Uh-huh. You just put the kids to bed. Is your response... Enjoying a mug of hot tea. Joy 
or God damn it. I think it's joy. Yeah. I don't think that Daniel... I mean, it's not like it would make it impossible for Daniel Cormier and John Jones to ever fight again if Anthony Smith beat him. Right. It almost makes it uh, the move up to heavyweight more viable. It doesn't seem like uh, Daniel Cormier is even really chasing that John Jones fight at this point. He he seems to be trying to avoid the topic and, and claim that he doesn't need to have anything to do with John Jones anymore. Uh, he does seem to take a little bit of pleasure in the man's misfortune. If I were him, I would have a tweet saved in drafts just to be on the safe side. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. How many, how implausible does a scenario have to be before you decide it's maybe not worth saving the draft? It's just a tweet. It's not like you're putting a five years worth of effort into it. You think it's just like the smiley face? <laughs> He's got a smiley face saved in drafts. Smiley face and then like a sleeping face emoji yeah. even though it would probably take longer to be like okay how do i get to my drafts again <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. of just no, I, but, especially if you're daniel cormier you don't know how this new bangle technology works like one of your kids will do it for you uh all right ben let's do just saying stuff and then we will get out of here for this for this week ben what is your just saying stuff i know you saw this story about uh UFC women's strawweight Pollyanna viana uh fighting a mugger yeah i saw in, the picture in rio yeah yeah, dude, she she put it on him. Speaking of getting your whole shit broke. Yeah. Uh, and her story was, you know, basically she's sitting outside. A guy comes up, says, give me your phone. Claims to have a gun. She was suspicious about the gun claim, and rightly so. It turns out we have a picture on MMA Junkie of the gun the guy claimed to have, and it's a like, cardboard outline of a gun, and not even really a good one. Um, but, yeah, she jumps up, punches him a couple times in the face, kicks him in the head, rear naked chokes him, and then puts him in a Kimura to wait for the cops to get there. Uh, he looked like he had been beat to shit in the, the photos we saw of it afterwards. I guess I'm just saying, if there's any country in the world where you need to have your you know, striking defense and choke defense on point before you go out to mug somebody, it's fucking Brazil. Yeah. Other place, I mean, in Canada, all right, maybe you can get away with a mugging here or there without having your, your rear naked choke defense completely sewn up. In Brazil, I mean, there's a good chance of you getting armbarred on the goddamn sidewalk, and you need to be prepared for that. Yeah. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, speaking of people moving up in weight, did you see this story that there's a potential bout in the offing between Anthony Pettis, Pretty Tony Pettis, and the Wonder Man, Stephen I did. Thompson? I did. Welterweight fight? I mean, I suppose at some time we got to stop doing that. Just mix and match kind of thing. Although hashtag will watch. I'm just saying this week, what is the over under for number of cartwheels in this fight? <laughs> and is it possible we have we we can break the record? I don't know what the record is, but whatever it is, let's go after it. And maybe get like a moment where they like simultaneously like barrel roll away from each other. Can someone email fight metric and ask what the record is for total number of cartwheels? Yeah. Just, just saying. saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. If you like the show, be sure to stop by iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to us, and give us a five-star rating or review if you think we are worth it. Obviously, that stuff helps our ranking, uh, and we appreciate it. So don't forget to do that. Uh, as for right now, though, we'll be back next week. We'll be breaking down all the stuff that happens in the world of mixed martial arts. Looking forward to... Uh, to the UFC's debut show on ESPN. But for right now, we are done. We are through. We are out. So we're going to get out that uh, wrestling ring now. Right?
you know, place you guys. Turn off the live stream camera and uh, I'm sure that I'm going to murder you at it. Junkyard Dog's going to take out Roddy Roddy Piper. Uh, see, I just got a Junkyard Dog pretty good. Did he have his moves set down? I mean, his brawlability quotient, high. Very high. I'll, I'll give him that. It's always been very high. Yeah. Can't stop the power slam. There's no counter. See, that's where I feel you're wrong. Don't drop your feet.